The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. This podcast began with both Pete and I, two kindred souls with a passion for moving the recovery process forward. If you've started listening more recently, say since the beginning of 2022, you likely noticed that Pete is absent from conversations. This is because he had a rather unexpected and abrupt departure from this earthly plane. Pete's voice remains in the intro in reverence to and respect for his part of our joint vision for this project. Simply put, it wouldn't be where it is today, nor have a future without him. Now, on to another great conversation. Hello and welcome to the last episode of Noggins and Neurons for 2022. We're saying goodbye to this year and welcoming 2023 with Suzanne Briggs, an occupational therapist from Colorado Springs, Colorado, certified in remedial vision. Suzanne works with stroke and brain injury survivors in a hospital outpatient clinic in her town. She is currently finishing up her Doctor of Occupational Therapy capstone project And in her spare time, she enjoys guest lecturing and presenting to her local brain injury and stroke support groups. She shares her expertise and explains things in ways everyone can understand and follow. You're in for a real treat. These next two episodes are so full of valuable information that if you're anything like Doro and me, you'll want to take notes. Before we continue on, Doro and I wish to express our deep appreciation to all of you for being here on this journey with us. We've had a steep learning curve this past year and are so thankful for your dedication in listening and sharing the podcast with others you know will benefit from it. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Doro's services, check out theneurohub.com. And if you're interested in mirror therapy client support materials, 
check out the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy. Links are in the show notes. And now, here's Suzanne. All right. So exciting to have you here, Suzanne. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about what I realize I love. And I didn't realize that until like a year or two ago. So it's kind of fun how you, you know, I'm 20 some years into this this profession and um, I'm now finding where my niche is. I'm figuring it out. And it's just kind of happened to not so much fall in my lap because I did search it out, but it's funny how circumstances brought me to a point where I I just kept going down that rabbit hole and the rabbit hole got deeper and wider. Hmm. So you're very interested in vision. Vision. Visions. And more to the point of remedial vision okay. versus low vision. And there is a difference. Yes. And I want to talk about the difference at some point probably yes. sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. I am curious though, how you decided that this is a passion of yours. Did you have yeah. a bunch of clients that had vision struggles or? Right. Absolutely. That's exactly what it was. People were coming in. So I work in an outpatient clinic and we focus on, well, OT specifically does um, neuro hands and and now vision. Um, But we were seeing a lot of patients coming in with concussion brain injuries um, were the big ones that kind of got me started on this. And sometimes PTs would have patients with vestibular diagnosis, and then they would slide over to OT because maybe what they were doing wasn't hitting everything and there were still symptoms and they couldn't figure out what was going on. So they'd slide them over to OT to see if we could figure out if it was a visual perception thing. Well, as I started thinking about some of these patients that were coming, they would go see an optometrist. And there were a couple of optometrists in town here that were familiar with us and we we knew them as neurooptometrists. And so we would refer them to the neurooptometrist and the neurooptometrist would say, hey, we have this therapy program that you can participate in, but it's going to cost so many dollars. And a lot of our patients, they're, they're on Medicaid. And so they cannot afford private pay anything. And so I felt like there was a real lack in the community um, support for them. And then they just had this big need to have that vision therapy service get provided and and who better to provide them for, uh, provide vision therapy to them, but OTs. So I I started looking into it. I would go to um, these neuro optometrist offices and I'd call them up and I'd say, hey, I have a patient coming. Can I just come in while my patient's there and kind of shadow what you're doing? And and so it kind of started from there. And then, hey, that's a really cool thing. Can you come and can you talk about that in our clinic? And then sometimes they would come and and kind of describe what they're doing and why we need to collaborate with them and and um, 
and what we can do to help those patients. So they kind of gave us a few treatment ideas. Great. Loved it. But it wasn't enough. I wanted to know why. I wanted to know how. I wanted to know why prisms, why lenses, what, why was it those things that helped those patients? So I kept calling the doctors and kept saying, hey, I have some free time. I'm not working this day. Can I come in for a couple of hours? And they were super nice. <laughs> this is before COVID, like right on the front end of COVID. So they're like, yeah, come on in. No big deal. I'll tell you what I can. And so um, just befriended the neurooptometrists and they kind of helped me understand a few things. And then I realized, okay, there's more to this and I can give this an OT spin. And oh, I awesome. can make the OT Practice Act work with what optometrists are doing. Now, keep in mind, I knew I couldn't do prisms. I knew I couldn't do lenses. I can't prescribe anything. I know that. I can't diagnose anything. I know that. But those treatment ideas that they gave me, how can I add function to it? What can I do with function with those treatment ideas? So, so I, I dabbled with that a little bit, played around with it, and it was a lot of fun. And then I'm realizing that that's not enough. There's more to it. What is it? Like, yeah, I'm giving them these treatments, but what is the why behind it? And and why, like, how is it working? What what is the what is the component in the brain that's really working to to make this um to make this uh, a treatment that I can get behind? Because I, I want it to be evidence based, right? So um I started just doing continuing education. Um the the big one that I went to was Robert Constantine. He's a big OT that treat that collaborates with OD, um, which is um optometrist. So he um has a lot of continuing education on how OTs can play a role in collaborating with um optometrists and what treatments can um OTs have with within that realm of vision, remedial vision. So I loved it, wasn't enough, wanted more. I started searching um, optometry world. And so I started looking at, okay, if I want to know more, OTs don't really teach this stuff. Who teaches it? Optometrists teach it. I found Dr. Mitch Scheiman, um, was had done in the past um, continuing education for, for therapists. So I kind of reached out to him and he says, you know, um, there's actually the optometry school, Salus University is now pairing up with OTs. And so they do, they're doing like a collaboration of optometrists and OTs. And I'm teaching this class to OTs, the same information I teach my optometrists on what you need to do to get these eyes working together to, and he says, and, and we put in that OT twist where it is function with that. I'm like, great. That sounds like a, what I need. Sign me up. So then I got remedial vision certified. And then I realized, gosh, I'm only a halfway. I've already completed half of my doctorate's degree. So here I am now finishing my doctorate's degree, figuring out my research, and I should hopefully be done with all of it um, at the end of May. But in the meantime, I'm kind of developing this vision program. I am collaborating with the area's neurooptometrists and just growing and just loving what I can do with vision and how it can really add to um, my occupational therapy treatments. And, and then 
to that point, not only am I doing that, I should back up a little bit. A lot of what this remedial vision in adults is for people with brain injuries. So we're talking, we're talking um, concussions, TBI, like mild, moderate, severe TBIs, and then strokes. Those are going to be the biggest people that are, that I'm going to see. And then there's also the pediatric side. And I, my my clinic is is most is all adults for the most part, unless there is a child that comes in with a a concussion, then I can treat treat them too and use the same treatments with them. So, oh my gosh! Just sorry, I just have to yeah. say I am so stinking excited to talk to you. You don't even understand. I have Good. so many clients in neuro that come in, and yeah. the caregiver goes, "Oh, I think it's a cognitive issue," yeah. and then I ask him, "Has anybody checked their eyes?" Do you feel different since you had your stroke? No, I'm normal. Everything, vision is fine. And then we check it and we find they have a field cut or visual neglect, anything that they had no idea they had. And they just miss half the world. So it has right. nothing to do with the cognition. It's all vision. Right. They just miss the information. They, and it's right. so needed to spread the word that clinicians get more comfortable, especially PTs and OTs. I feel like we're the first people in touch with the clients and the inpatient outpatient setting that can address these issues better. Um, so right. I just think it's super in important to just spread the word and, and share right. the, the knowledge. Because if, if you know how to screen for, exactly. yeah, then you, then you're getting those patients up and going a lot faster, that neuroplasticity can kick in. And of course you got to wait for, for the brain to heal and be ready for that. Right. Right. But you can be this. I feel like the sooner you can start with that vision component, just, just like after a stroke with your arm, you want to get started with that sooner than later to get that neuroplasticity to kick in sooner than later. Right. So remedial vision is, there's, so there's different layers to, to vision. The first layer is you, your eyes need to see clearly. So you need the optometrist to see these patients right off to make sure they have the right prescription, make sure that their eyes are aligned. And if they aren't aligned, they're going to need prisms or if they need help with alignment, they're going to need prisms. And you got to make sure that their eye health is, is, is well. So we always have to be working in collaboration with with the optometrist, and I do want to make sure that people un understand that that is part of my my treatment is getting the optometrist involved. The next step is where therapy happens, and that is when your eyes are you have poor eye movement, um, which would be your saccades or your pursuits. You have binocular. Um, issues as far as like eye alignment, and that can be a foria or tropia. And, and then also accommodation also goes in there. And those are the biggest areas that I do my remedial vision with is are those that are those areas, because that's the binocular component of our vision that requires neuromuscular control. And so that's what I tap into. I tap into that neuromuscular control, control, teaching them how to engage um, that control as they're moving their eyes, either teaming them together or jumping with um, saccadic eye movement or pursuits as you're following um, or tracking something. How soon, sorry, am I mm -hmm. cutting you off? Nope. Okay. How soon after the injury do you get started with the therapy, the vision therapy? Because when we screen clients and outpatient, a lot of them had their strokes 
um, several years back. But then we had yeah. fresher strokes that were less than six months. And we tried to work with an optometrist and we always get the same answer of give it six months. Let the brain heal, let the swelling go down before then there's no point in doing anything. Have you found the same to be true or would well, you say jump on it right away? So I, so I think that there is a bit of a dilemma in the community. I mean, in just the worlds, like the neurologist world, optometrist world, and whether that optometrist is a neurooptometrist who understands how the brain works with the eyes versus just are the eyes seen clearly. So sometimes that's also a difference of understanding. Um, I have not had any pushback. In fact, there, uh, we have in our hospital, we have a neurooptometrist that goes up to inpatient. So we're talking like a week after a stroke and is teaching therapists what they need to do for their, for their um, remedial vision. Oh, wow. So That's incredible. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's progressive. It, it really is. And the mm -hmm. fact that they recognize that therapy has a huge role in, in, helping this patient is also wonderful that there isn't that turf war and because that can happen so easily. Yes, it sure can. So, um, so I'm trying to think, have, I wanted to talk about what it was that I did with, with the, um, like what it is that I'm looking for. And so when people come to me, I'm looking at, binocular vision. I'm looking at how are their brain using both eyes together? How are they processing that vision? So I'm working on that neuromuscular control. And then that next level, then before <laughs> you go to the, <laughs> before you go to the next level. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about what, how does a person present if they're having a challenge with the binocular oh. vision, you, you know, just for people who our survivors and care partners to understand, right. because I know sometimes we've already talked about the presentation can be difficult to pick up on because people do think there's a cognitive problem at times. Right. And so I want right. to make sure that we don't get too far into it and lose people who really need to hear this. Right. So for just, the, and I'm talking specifically for TBI patients, um, and, and some of these symptoms bleed over to stroke, but a lot of these are TBI, and I'm trying to find the quote that I have here. Um, it's from um, research, here it is, it's from research 2021. It says 46% of TBI survivors have visual field deficits. 40 to 48% have convergence insufficiencies. 31 to 74, excuse me, 31 to 47 have accommodative insufficiencies. 6 to 9% have diploplia, which is double vision. 10 to 30% have ocular motor deficits, which would be your pursuits and saccades. So that is kind of what we're what we would typically see with TBI. So now, if, if somebody has a problem with accommodation, is that going to look like anything? So that's going to be somebody who says, gosh, 
I can't get anything to be clear. Accommodation gives us clear vision. Accommodation and convergence of your eyes work together. When your eyes move in just the right amount, there's a reflex system that tells your lenses to change its shape. And so the muscles around the lenses pull on that lens to change its shape. And it makes that image become clear. So you're your eye has to see the image clearly. If it doesn't, it's telling your brain, I don't see it clearly. That accommodation or that lens starts to change its shape and it allows for that image to become clear. If you can't do that on its own, then you would need some glasses to help you. So after 40, a lot of us need that help. So accommodation means clear vision. Okay. The, those two work hand in hand. So sometimes if people wore glasses before their injury... And accommodation is a challenge. They would know if they put their glasses on and they still couldn't see. Yeah, they would have a hard time maybe. Or they would have, and maybe they could see, but it would take them a lot of struggle to see with their, or sometimes you might see where you're, if you're a kid in school and you're taking notes and you look up at the board and, oh, it takes a while and there, now I can see. And then you figure out what you got to write down and you look down at your paper and, Oh, it takes a while there. Now I can write it down because now I can see with a line. Yeah. So that would be. I can see where that would be exhausting. Yeah. I take, it takes up a lot of brain work. And mm -hmm. so vision leads and, and one of the neuro optometrists here, that's, that's his, that's his line that he tells everybody vision leads. You walk into a room, it's your eyes that tell you where you are in space. What's in front of you? How far away is it from you? Is it moving? Do you have to move? Um, and so that spatial awareness is like your magnocellular tract. And when you say, oh, that's a chair, oh, that's Susie, or that's purple, that's your parvocellular tract. So your brain starts processing that and, and it just starts firing up your brain. So vision leads. If, if you don't have your vision, it's, it's hard to know where you are spatially and who and what and any descriptive nouns around you. Yeah. Okay. So that's thank a cognition you. piece, right? Yeah. 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 Well, thank you for making that a little more clear. Yeah. So that's a, a solid foundation, right? Say that again. It's a solid foundation. Yeah. Well, like that's, creating, it's a no if one. It's, if it's intact, there's a, there's a good foundation to start from. That's if right. it's not, but there's still more because you said it's hierarchical. Yeah. There's level two. There, there's level, level two. Okay. Two. Level one is are you seeing things? Is the image clear? Right. So do you need prisms? Do you Clearly. need lenses? Um, or is, is your eye healthy? Do you have macular degeneration? Do you have cataracts? You know, that sort of. Do you have a detached retina? Be figured out first. Level two then is where I can come in, start coming in and working with binocular vision, eye movements, eye alignment, that sort of thing. Level three then is. Once, so we're working on that hierarchical, that was a mouthful, um, <laughs> layering, right? So once we start getting your eyes and your brain um, working together and your eyes are working together, your brain is using your eyes appropriately, then we can start get, getting into the higher level, which is visual information processing. And that is where we tap into a lot of like, we'd be using tests like, um, the MVPT test. Um, I forget right now what the pediatric one would be for that. The Barry, the Barry, anyway, um, 
Yeah. So we would be tapping into mm -hmm. those sort of higher level information processing. So like the figure ground, the um, spatial orientation, the figure closure, the um, visual memory. Yes. All of that. Right. And there's that cognitive component that goes along with all that too. Right. So, yeah. So yeah. how can we expect our brains to interpret what we're seeing if we're not using our eyes very efficiently, if we can't get it to be a single picture, or if we are having a hard time seeing things clearly, well, then that brain is already kind of foggy, kind of sluggish after the injury, then it really is harder if we're not using the eyes efficiently. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of adding on to that, then also, then you've got like, if you have a brain injury, then you've got like all the vestibular stuff that can go and make everything more haywire. And then you have, um, sometimes a midline shift that happens after. So all of those things is so vision related. Um, yeah, there's so many different. You really can't take vision out of the, out of the whole process. And I wonder sometimes how much that gets missed. I mean, Doro, you already mentioned it. I, I think it gets missed a lot. And I'm totally honest, when I worked in um, an outpatient setting before I did driving rehab, I it was something that I frequently overlooked. You know, you just check briefly, saccades, okay, ver uh, convergence, okay, um, peripheral vision maybe, and that was it. Mm -hmm. I didn't really put a whole lot of weight in it. I was more concerned about um, arm movement, arm weakness, that sensory issues but not the vision and then once i started the driving rehab a lot of vision there's a lot of people that that sometimes even have a slight midline shift that even the neurologist is going to miss because it's so slight but when people start saying i'm having a really hard time parking in the lines mm -hmm. or my arm is i'm always bumping into this one oh, side yeah. of my mm -hmm. of my body or um uh -huh. and it's yeah when they ride <laughs> When they ride on the, the divider line and it goes clunk, 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 clunk. You ask him, do, do you think something's going on? He's like, no, I hear something clunking. Is your you van okay? <laughs> yeah, the van's fine. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's so interesting. And it's... Yeah, oh, right, right. We need more of it. I feel fortunate because... I always say the clinic I grew up in, it's the clinic I worked in for a long time and it was a certified stroke center and we had a neuro optometrist that we were regular, regularly interacting with. So nice. I feel like I, I've been fortunate that way. Not that I am near at your level, Suzanne, at, at understanding all of this, but at least I had an awareness of it and could... Um, identify if there was something going on and refer to the neuro optometrist. Yeah. But we did not have that him. person. Yeah. But we didn't yeah, have that you. person come in and work oh. with people. That is, that's awesome. Right. That's a gift. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And I love the fact that the more collaboration you can do, it's just, Oh my God, it's better for your patients. It, you it's you're going to be able to see the patient from different views and mm -hmm. yeah and 
angles. You're going to have the patients love you more because they know that you're talking to your doc, their doctor, and mm -hmm. they don't have to remember everything. And there's so many times the patient will go to the doctor and they'll come back and they'll say, I don't know what she was talking about, mm -hmm. but this, here's my prescription. Tell me what it is. And so I can read the prescription. I can tell them, you know, you have prisms and this is where it's based out here because of this reason. And this is why she put it that way. And this is, you know, and so I can talk to them about that. And, and the, and the doctor and I are also like faxing notes back and forth too. So I also have their notes. So I know what she found and what her thoughts are, or I shouldn't say her, hurry him. So that's, I love having that relationship where I can just, even just quick text the doctor saying, I have so-and-so here in my clinic, here's a question. And then they'll text me back real quick. That's and awesome. Yeah. So, and I'm not saying that happens for, for everybody, every doctor. Yeah. There, there's just, you know, you start to get a relationship with a couple of people and you can really work with that person well. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wonder, can we talk a little bit about the prisms? Because not okay. everybody understands what prisms are and what they're for. Sure. They can be for different things. <laughs> Fantastic. How about that? <laughs> can we talk about some of the different things? Absolutely. Cool. Um, sorry, I'm trying to find, I closed your picture out. Okay. Um, <laughs> I Prisms, they can be used for treatment. Um, as far as just making that neuroplasticity really kick in and increasing a challenge, they can be used for compensation. So if there is somebody whose eyes aren't aligned and they don't have a neuromuscular component or they don't have enough, let's say, neuromuscular strength to hold their eyes in alignment, they're going to need a prism to help them with daily life. If it's a tropia, you can see that eye not aligned. If it's a phoria, they can hold their eyes in just enough, but they're struggling. And so they need a prism to kind of help them um, stop the struggle, start working on that neuromuscular control, and really start to improve that, that uh, binocular vision efficiency. So then that prism starts getting reduced and that as they get better control of that, of that system. So, but if you have somebody who is, has a midline shift, well, then those prisms can be used to kind of pull their um, spatial awareness or their center of gravity awareness back into true midline with just your eyes um being pulled over with the prisms. If you have a field cut, sometimes if it's small enough, you can have a prism help pull what is missing and skew it in front of you a little bit more. So the prism, the, the thicker part of the prism, there's a thick end and there's a small end. And the thick end is called the base and the small or thin end is called the apex. That So when that image comes into that prism, it's going to shift over to the apex, over to the thin end of the prism. So when you have a patient that is base out right, that means the thick part is going to be to the right. And that image coming in is going to be shifted over to the apex, to the inside, to the nasal, to the midline. 
Okay. So you have um, neurooptometrists. Some of them can be called behavioral neurooptometrists because they like to see how does the body react to the prisms? How does the body, how do they walk before? How do they walk after? And they really use those prisms to change the function of the walk, the gait, the perception and all of that. And then you have um, the neurooptometrist that might look at um, use those prisms more for eye alignment, if that makes sense. And and some and a lot of times it's like you get one, you get the other one. So they just don't look at the whole. Not everybody okay. does, but the behavioral um, optometrists are going to really hone in on how does that affect your body, how does that affect your movement. So to uh, say it in really simple terms, a prism is glasses correct um where the glass is cut in a manner that it compensates for the area of weakness it, it basically picks so the up prism is called ground in or it can be stuck on mm -hmm. a field expansion okay so it's or in, it can be like a sticker in the glass right yeah depending on depending on their on, need okay and depending on um Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're called field expansions or they're peliprism expansions. There's a couple of different ones. So, yeah. But yeah, otherwise they're ground into your lenses. They're expensive. And and so, and especially when you have somebody who, somebody who starts out with like a, maybe a five prism diopter prism that's fairly thick and and then that prism no longer works for them because that the efficiency of the brain is kicking in as you're working with it. And then that prism has to go down a few more diopters, prism diopters, and then they have to get a whole new set of glasses. And so it can be very expensive. And oh. so the fast, which is another reason why I'm like the faster I can get these people starting to engage that neuroplasticity, start engaging that neuromuscular control of that eye efficiency, then the less they're going to need those those prisms if they needed them to begin with. Hopefully, hopefully, I can't say that that's, but that but that is like one of my arguments to the doctors is like you want me in there sooner than later because you want these people compliant with their prism glasses. There's so many patients that come to me and they're like, it was going to cost me five eight hundred dollars for these prisms. I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to do it. And then I'm like, oh, oh, no. <laughs> oh, you know, I want, I want them to get the best results, but I totally understand that that money, that, that price point is tough for some people. So then we look at, we look at community support and try to get a scholarship for them or, or something like that for those people oh. that can't afford it. In our community, Brain Alliance is a, is a great community resource that you can apply and, and they can help you out. Yeah. If somebody ends up, um, you know how sometimes people have a brain injury and they, they switch from traditional insurance to the Medicaid waiver program. Do you have that mm -hmm. where you are? How does that work for being able to get the proper vision supports? It's hard. Does they that make it a little more difficult? Yeah. And those, and that seemed to be like the big hole in service in our community was just like these, 
people don't have a job anymore, or maybe they didn't have a job to begin with and they were in a car accident or, you know, just there's, it, that seemed to be the population that was falling through the cracks. Mm -hmm. So, um, and since we can bill Medicaid for our services, I'm like, this just seemed like a win-win for everybody because now they can get the, the remedial vision help that they need and um, maybe not spend money on the that rehab, rehab part of it if they need to spend money on the, their glasses part of it. Yeah. yeah. You know how you can donate your used glasses to the Lions Club? Mm -hmm. Can you donate prism glasses? prism glasses that don't work for you anymore? Can you, like, I wonder if there's... I wonder that would be able to reuse those. Yeah, I wonder. I don't know because prism glasses, prisms are ground in to the regular prescription, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's why the stickers are a good option. Yeah, maybe. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the one the bad thing about the stickers is that. Um, you can kind of see the lines, the prism lines on the stickers. And sometimes after a brain injury, you have mm. a hard time. It's like looking at the windshield or looking through the windshield, looking at the window and seeing the spots or looking through the window. And sometimes it's hard to not see the spots on the window. And that was is really hard yeah. for some people. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I am incredibly curious to learn what a treatment session looks like. Yes. Um, okay. Depending, it all depends on the diagnosis. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, let's pick right. One. <laughs> okay. So let's say since convergence insufficiency is kind of one of the more common ones, and you can have this after stroke, you can have this after TBI. First, how am I going to know someone that has convergence insufficiency, right? I have this whole, it's called the OMAT, Ocular Motor Assessment Tool. And I, I'll kind of show you a picture. That's kind of the tool that I use and do a lot of my assessments with. But if you don't have that, you just take um, a pencil and a tape measure and you don't measure to the tip of the nose. You measure to the, the top of your nose in between your eyes because that's gonna be your consistent measurement. Everybody's got a different length of their nose, so you're never gonna have a consistent measurement there. Yeah. Yep, makes sense. So I, that's like one of the first things I tell everybody, Me don't measure to the nose. <laughs> so you're gonna take that, that pencil <laughs> and you're gonna bring it and you're gonna watch their eyes and you're gonna see at what point, and you're gonna ask them, tell me when this is double. I don't care if it's blurry. You tell me when it turns into two. And when they say it turns into two, you see, and, and there's also a difference in the optometry world versus the therapy world. What is normal? Um, a lot of the therapy world will say 10 centimeters. The optometrist that I work with um, say closer to five centimeters is what they, what they would want. And and some of that also has to do with age. You're not going to require a 90 year old to be five centimeters, you know, <laughs> but um, so, yeah, you're going to measure it to, to right here between the eyes at the, above their nose. And when they say it's double or when you see an eye slough off, 
or when you see your eyes kind of jump back and forth. That's where you stop. That's where you measure it. And if it's not within normal limits, then it, you, they might have convergence insufficiency. Who can diagnose that? Not me. I can't diagnose it. All I can say is you have the symptoms that are similar to convergence insufficiency. Mm -hmm. Go see a neurooptometrist, <laughs> get diagnosed, right? And then I have them fill out a questionnaire. It's called the Convergence Insufficiency Symptom Survey. If that score is above 20, that means that they are more than likely on the side of convergence insufficiency. So then I also do a test where I have them go near, far, near, far, near, far, and see how many times they can do it. And then there's norms to what's normal. But for anybody who wants to look at their patient and say, hmm, I wonder if there's convergence, like any PT, any speech therapist that's out there, they want to know that is the way I would have them do it is just take that tape measure with a pencil, stick, whatever, and see where they can go before their eye starts doing funny things or before they start seeing double. Then we start working on that neuromuscular control. And maybe one of the first things I have them go home with is a Brock string. So there have been studies out there now that have shown that pencil push-ups are as good as placebo. So if you want to give your patient something to do, sure, you can give them pencil push-ups, but you're not training them any neuromuscular control. You're not training them what it is to engage both eyes. All you're doing is just saying, see one, do you see one? Yeah, they probably do. If one eye is suppressing every time, they're always going to see one. So that's not really helpful to, to help them understand neuromuscular their control and get better efficient um, binocular vision. Did so, you already talk about pencil push-ups when I was gone? No, I was doing it right now. Oh, okay. Don't do it. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but I think people who are listening might want to know what is a pencil push-up? It's different than a pencil so, pusher. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. So it's when you take a pencil and you hold it out in front of you and you look at that pencil and you want to keep it one. You want to keep it one as long as possible and you're bringing it to your eyes, right? Which is great. But what happens to those people that um, don't have a hard time controlling their eyes or have suppression, which means one eye is not working. They're always going to see one and it's going to come right up to, you know, to the, to the bridge of their nose. And it's always going to be one without a problem. And so you're not teaching them any sort of neuromuscular control with a pencil pushup. And so I was just um, saying that there, there's research out there now that was able to demonstrate that pencil pushups had as good of a result as the placebo in a random control study. So for that main reason where it could maybe work for some, but really it wasn't really training that neuroplasticity part of what you need to really, really work at to get your brain to use your eyes efficiently. So this is the part that really is what we understand as therapists that a lot of times survivors and care partners don't understand, right? That uh, neuromuscular control piece. And so what you're, you know, just what you're saying is that you're not causing a change within the brain that will cause a change in the way the eyes function with just doing a pencil push up. Right. Right. Yes. 
So it's not going to hurt anything. So that's where you. Sorry, Doro. But it may not be no, helping no, no. anything. Right. Right. Doro. Thanks. So that's where you use the Brock use the string. Brock string. And could you um, describe the Brock string a little bit for Absolutely. our listeners? Yes. Because they're probably not familiar with it. <laughs> so the Brock string is a piece of string with beads on it. And depending on, it, it can be something that you just make at home even. It doesn't have to be specially bought, but depending on if you do want to buy it, you could have three beads on it. You could have four beads on it. And you're going to tie the end, one end of it to um, like a drawer pull or a doorknob or um, an arm armrest on a chair or the leg of a table, anything. And you're going to pull it tight up to the tip of your nose or even the bridge of your eyes, wherever, wherever your bifocals sit and you're able to look down that, that rope. Um, and you're probably going to want to use your bifocal part of this because I'm going to tell that patient, you're only going to pay attention to one bead. Ignore the rest for right now. We're working on that one bead. You're going to bring that bead closer to your nose and you're going to look at that bead and that bead needs to stay one. So maybe I'll start them at 10 inches. Maybe I'll start them at eight inches. Kind of depends on how the, where, where that pencil split into two. And that's called a near point convergence. <laughs> All these big words, right? So um, I want to remember those PTs out there. <laughs> so, <laughs> and anyway, I um, will have them look at that one bead. That bead needs to stay single. But as they look at that one bead, I want them to see two strings in front of that bead, two strings behind that bead. And when they see two strings in front and two strings in back, that's going to tell them that both eyes are working together. If they don't see, if they only see one string, that means one eye's not doing its job. Okay. So you can be, so before, and, and the goal is to get that bead up to one inch away from their nose. That's, that's the big goal. Um, and maintain the two strings in front, two strings in back. And then I ask them, do you see two strings in front, two strings in back? Great. What letter of the alphabet is that? Well, it makes an X. So then we start saying, okay, do you see that X? If you don't see the X, then both eyes aren't working together. So then, and then I want them to recognize how it feels. How do your eyes feel when both eyes are working together versus not working together? So then we're getting that kinesthetic awareness, right? We're, we're getting them to really understand how it's supposed to feel when your eyes are getting more efficient and it doesn't feel good. It hurts. It's a lot of work. Um, but the more efficient they get, the closer that bead can come and maintain that X. And that's where we start. Or home exercises. So at what point? Okay. So at what point would you add the second and third bead? Um, I add the second bead when they can get like a few inches from their nose. And they and then they okay. can start looking away, coming back to that bead and getting it. Looking away, coming back to that bead and getting the X. So we're adding that. And then if the patient doesn't have a lot of vestibular issues, I'll even have them start nodding yes, shaking their head no, keeping that mm -hmm. X. Okay. So if they have some vestibular issues, are they going to get a little nauseous? They could. Yeah. Vision therapy is tough. And yeah. that's hard about, that's the hard thing about therapy and having people go home and do their 
their exercises is because it sometimes doesn't help them feel good. But the more efficient their eyes are working together, the easier it gets and the less symptoms they have. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's that having to see it to believe it kind of a thing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How long do you typically work with a client on one exercise? Do you give them rest breaks in between or is it sort of a 60 minute session or do you do maybe, I, I can't even imagine doing it for an hour. Uh, so I would think like maybe a few minutes and then you give it a yeah. rest break and a few more minutes and switch it up. I tell my patients, even for home exercises, that all they need to do is 15 minutes a day, break it into small chunks, but just 15 minutes. That's really what... Don't overdo it. Um, And we only have 40 minutes to see our patients. So that really limits me. So when I'm doing the Brock string, it's just a review and it's to set them up to go home and do it. I'm not spending a lot of time with it. They will come back in the clinic. If they still have questions about it, then we'll review it again. But otherwise it's like, they should be able to do it on their own. Until I add that next bead, I'll ask them how close is that bead to your nose? And then when there are a few inches from their nose, then I'll add that second bead and that's, and then we start doing what's called bug on the string. And, and that requires a little bit more, um, a little bit more control of eye alignment to do that. So there is a progression. And so there, now I'm using two beads and, and not everybody does it this way. I know, I understand, but this, if I really want to get to, what the patient needs for convergence and sufficiency and that neuromotor, neuromuscular control, those are going to be the two big ones that I do with um, rock string. Um, And then I do, I use those great 3D looking glasses and we do what's called vectograms where we get that 3D effect, um, really working on convergence and divergence with your eyes aligning to, to see near your eyes, aligning to see far. And then um, I'm, I, some, if there's an eye suppressing, I'm going to use red green glasses also. We're going to work on stuff like that. And then we're, we're once that those things start to get under control, then we're using eccentric circles where your eyes have to take two circles and make them into one and you get a 3D effect with those two circles. But keep in mind, I'm always adding proprioception to it. We're standing, we're walking, we're on foam, we're on tilt boards, we're on balls. I mean, we're never, if you're highly symptomatic, we're sitting still. And maybe to start something, we're sitting still. Otherwise, I want you up. I want you moving. I I want your eyes getting used to um, having control with processing peripheral movement, processing any busy background because that hypers that visual hypersensitivity really plays um, havoc with somebody with a brain injury. So, yeah. So that's, those are a few things that, that, um, that I can do. And then I really try to add that, like we go out to the parking lot and I have my patients walking in, in the parking lot. And when we're working on eye movements, I have them turning their head left, left and right, cause adding that vestibular piece. And we're, we're looking at license plates and I'm talking to them about, needing to be able to look back and forth and making your eyes 
do most of that work because your eyes are going to be your faster muscle. They're going to be the ones that see that car backing up in front of you first and they're the shopping cart that's in your way or uh, the pedestrian that it, whatever it is, you need to be able to move your eyes, move your head. And, and that's one of those activities. And then we go to the pharmacy and we do a shopping activity and we go to the gift store and then we do map reading activity. And then we do um, here's the place on the map. Now let's go find it activity. And yeah, so I can, you know, I just start layering it up and really having a lot of field trips. <laughs> oh, I love it. So that's the thing. Like, you know, a lot of people wonder what is the difference between just going to the optometrist and then working with an occupational therapist where you're very functional, you're integrating them into the community and forcing their eyes to work so that, right you know, that that information can be taken in and processed and they can get back to life the way that they can enjoy it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and if, so if you're, uh, if, if you're not an expert in vision, so some of the first things that you can maybe have them do is do eye movement stuff, right? Um, have them do Saccadic eye movements, pursuits. So if you're a PT and you're like, oh, man, I don't know if this patient is vestibular, if it's vision, have them like have them follow a ball, swing a ball in front of them. And if they're like, whoa, that that that's trippy or that really makes me nauseous, well then yeah, there's some vision stuff you have to work on. If they cannot go left to right and go from um from pencil point to pencil point, left and right or they undershoot where their eyes can't quite get there, then yeah, there's some eye movement stuff that we have that a, somebody who works with vision would be able to work on. So those are just some fast things. So like you're, you're working to see how close the, can that pencil get before your, it turns double. You're working to, you're looking to see if they have increased symptoms or if their eyes have a hard time fixating on a moving object or if they can jump from one object to another. And those might be some really easy screens that speech therapist, physical therapist, or OT can do to kind of know if there's a vision issue. Yeah, that's, um, that's really important because being able to identify a problem, even if you don't know how to treat it, is going to help the person because you've identified that there's a problem and now you can help them decide where to go next. Right. And and I, PTs are a great referral source for me because they get a lot of people for vestibular. And then they start to realize that it's not just vestibular, there's other stuff going on. Well, then what do you do? <laughs> you know, so yeah, there's a couple fast screens that they can know where to go. Well, can we talk about the vestibulo-ocular reflex a little bit? Because the sure. eyes and the vestibular system are very closely intertwined. They're connected. Yeah. In the pons. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. So if your head turns one way, your eyes are going to move the opposite direction, right? And that's kind of called, called that gaze stabilization. Um, but that's that reflex. When your head turns one direction, your eyes your eyes should be able to move the opposite direction and you, so you can maintain your balance, so you can maintain your position in space. So it is that system 
that needs to work together so you can turn your head left and right without throwing you off balance and into a wall or <laughs> whatever, but or increase your symptoms of dizziness and nausea and stuff like that. Yeah. So yeah, there's different diagnoses that can affect that vestibular system and affect that reflex. And so they so can just sitting in your recliner and watching TV all day. That's not good for the VOR. It's not good for the VOR at all. No, absolutely not. And I actually just had somebody call me today and say, I've got vertigo. And so I'm asking her all these questions and I'm like, I think you have crystals, but that's a whole nother podcast. Yeah, so- <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah not, not, uh, um, not gem crystals. <laughs> no, right. Yeah. Ear canal crystals, which yeah. just aren't as fun. No. <laughs> but we haven't even touched base on, on stroke yet. I mean, so that's like another category in itself is, is stroke. And that's what Dora was talking about is, are these patients with like neglect and field cuts and depending on where that stroke happened in the brain, where that infarct was, depends on how much of a field cut, where is that field cut versus a neglect. This wraps up part one of Remedial Vision with Suzanne Briggs. Stay tuned for part two, where we continue learning from Suzanne. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.